0: folks. It's Marvin Cash. I'm the host of The Articulate Fly, and I'm joined by my friend Paul Bort from Drift Media. Welcome to the show, Paul.
1: Thanks, Marvin. Appreciate you having me
0: on. Yeah, it's going to be great. And before we get started tonight, I want to give a shout-out to tonight's sponsor, the Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival. The festival will be held March 23rd and 24th in Plano, Texas. For more details, just go to the events page on our website at thearticulatefly.com. Well, Paul, I ask all of my podcast guests uh, to tell me about their earliest fishing memory.
1: Oh man. Okay. So I grew up, um, or was born in new Orleans and my family moved up here before kindergarten. So I can remember in Louisiana. So this would be, I was pre-kindergarten. I was probably four years old. We had came up here to North Carolina, specifically Cherokee. And we wanted to go, I actually have a picture of this. We wanted to go fish and I wanted to go trout fish for whatever reason. And I remember my sister and I had a bucket. You ever go to those, like, you know, the pay ponds or whatever they are? Yeah, and
0: I've done that for sure.
1: I, yeah, I remember telling my sister, I, she caught a fish and put it in the bucket. I remember telling her, you know, there's no way that fish will jump out that bucket. I was trying to show it to her because I was excited I caught one. And, of course, it jumped out the bucket. And she does not fish to this day. So <laughs> but that was the very first fish. I actually found that picture when I was... You know, I was younger and I'd remembered that, but you never, you know, you know, when you're a kid, it's like, did I really do that? Or is that just something I cooked up? But I actually recently found that picture about
0: three or four years ago. It's just kind of neat. That, that's funny. That reminds me of when I was in elementary school, I can remember my mom taking me to a trout farm and, um, trying to decide, you know, whether you bait, you pay by the time or you pay by the, um, pay by the pound. And, uh, had a, had a fisherman decide, you know, he was really nice guy. Helped me, uh, gave me salmon eggs, caught a bunch of fish and talking about pictures. I can literally see a picture of me in my like underoos, Superman undershirt and a pair of army fatigues and a baseball cap, uh, holding those fish up on a stringer. So that's pretty, that's pretty funny. Thanks for reminding me of that. Um, absolutely. Well, when did you, uh, jump to the dark side of fly fishing? You know, something
1: that'll surprise anybody listening is everyone thinks I fly fish my whole life, and I did not. I started fly fishing when I was eighteen years old. So I'd wanted, I'd fished my whole life. That's all I ever thought about. Every day was fishing and hunting, but specifically fishing. And I knew I wanted to fly fish. Frankly, couldn't afford a fly rod, and I was looking in the Cabela's, and I just one day I, I just bought one. I ordered it and. Funny enough, I had a, uh, college class with Bob Satterwhite at Southwestern. And, uh, one of the PE classes was fly fishing. So I thought, well, this is interesting. So I had the cows catalog in one hand and the, you know, the Cabela's in the other. So I said, I'm about to get college credit for fishing. So that's what I did.
0: Super cool. And who were some of the mentors as you got into the sport?
1: Oh man. So I was lucky, um, First of all, when I when I first got in, I guess it's for me it's kind of two parts. I'll, we'll talk about work later, but all the people that influenced me that weren't close to me, like weren't we'd say like lived in the same town or whatever, I got to work with. But early on, when I first started fishing, I really was kind of looking up to Flip pallet because I watched his show all the time, and I think everybody loved Walker's K. I watched Spanish fly, and even though there was a lot of conventional, like Jose certainly fly fished. And I watched, more importantly, Larry Dahlberg's show, The Hunt for Big Fish. And I just remembered seeing Larry, you know, go to these crazy places, and, you know, I was a young guy. And for me, really, those were the kind of the guys that I wanted to, I don't know, be like. You know, it's like that place they were in, the thing they were doing. I'm not just related to it. So it felt like a natural progression to go from was pretty much spinner fishing and bait fishing, whatever I could get around to, to fly fishing.
0: Very cool. And so you're, you're seeing these guys on TV. Who are some of the people that were with you, um, in Western North Carolina as you were kind of digging into the sport?
1: You know, I guess from the very beginning, you know, Bob Satterwhite was the first guy.
0: Um, he was an English teacher,
1: actually, I believe, but also taught fly fishing. But then as I started coming up in fly fishing. The most important person to me was actually Gordon Vanderpool. He's a guide here at Turning Stones Fly Fishing. Moved from Pennsylvania. And super long story short, we got together. I, I think I reached out to him on the Southeast Fly Fishing Forum. Um, I was on all these forums and kind of reading all the Kool-Aid and trying to, trying to get all of it I could get in. I just reached out to him and said, hey, I see you're a guide. You live in Franklin, and I like to fish, and we should get together. I don't, I didn't really even really realize the end, etiquette then. It was like, I kind of asked him to go on a guide trip, but didn't really pay him. So I guess I still owe him one for that.
0: <laughs> well, that's pretty funny. Cause I know you guys have a really special relationship and, and Gordon's a super great sure. guy, super knowledgeable fishing guy. I fished with him. Um, and he was actually a guest on the show, uh, earlier. Um, so, so you see so oh, Yeah. So you meet Gordon. Um, you guys, I assume you probably start fishing together a lot, right?
1: Yeah, we do. And kind of fast forward time, he he. Uh, we go fish in a place on the uh, upper upper Nantahala, and he basically said, "No short terms. Like, hey, you're you're pretty fishy, but you suck and you can't cast." And a lot of people, you know, I guess maybe wouldn't like that, but that's kind of how we are together. So I didn't get mad at all, and I said, "Okay, well, teach me then." And he said, "Okay." So uh, I, I didn't know anything about casting. I, I mean, I knew nothing, literally. I just knew I wanted to do it. And we started fishing together. And then was probably about a year later, he might know the timeline better. And this isn't too long ago. This is like 2008, give or take, nine maybe. He says, hey, you should try fly fishing competition. And to be completely honest, the first thing I thought was, that doesn't sound fun. That sounds stupid. Like, I don't understand that. I I was conditioned to bass fishing being competitive, being from the south, but never fly fishing. So my initial reaction was negative. And then he told me, he said, hey, man, you know, I did these tournaments and these guys, all these guys around here, they're really, really good. When we get done with the tournament, they show us how they caught fish and what the flies they were using and so on and so forth. So he said, you know, for you to be able to get into some of these tournaments at the time, like the Rumble and the Rhododendron, we didn't. The only person on Team USA at the time was Josh Stevens, which we can get into, but that wasn't really around us at that point. And uh, I said, okay, well, if I need to get in this tournament, I know I need to be able to cast because there was a casting qualifier. So I remember I went out the first day at the rec park in Franklin, right here where I live, and I put out a, or Gordon put out a 40-foot target, which is a very, very reachable target. I couldn't even hit it. So I couldn't, I knew nothing about a loop. I knew nothing except where Fish lived. And A big fast forward from there is like, you know, he taught me and gave me the drive and I was able to see what a good caster looked like and the rest is kind of history.
0: Well, that's interesting. What, I know you competed a lot. I mean, what, what is kind of one of the biggest misconceptions you think people have about competitive fly fishing?
1: I think in my experience, um, that people think that we act or feel a certain way and to be more specific that we're arrogant or that were, you know, some sort of, you know, three-eyed creature that fly fishes. And I just think that's the opposite, you know, being around personally and professionally all walks and all manners and all ages of fly fishing, I would defend to anybody that it's the kindest, most humble, most giving group of anglers I've ever been around.
0: Interesting, and I know you don't compete anymore. How does the the competitive nymphing stuff kind of fit into your day-to-day fishing now?
1: So, I think <clears throat> it's something that, I mean, just like anything, it's a tool in the toolbox. It's conveniently something I use a lot because, frankly, it catches a lot of fish, as you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's seeing, I guess, with competition, what was great was you were forced to fish water that you otherwise wouldn't. I think pre-competition, we got to a rut where it's like, you know, I want to fish the water. I want to fish because I'm good at that. And now it's, I'm just less worried about, it's not, it's not, you know, me thinking I'm going to catch fish. I just know I've had, you know, experiences all over with tough fishing and great fishing. And I've been forced to fish water. I hated. So now I feel like I'm pretty comfortable. You know, when I go out with my friends or whoever, it's just something, I don't know. I think the more versatile you get as a competitor, the easier it is to be successful in other places because, you know, if you and I were to go to Montana or wherever, we could fish anywhere we want. And that's a lot different than saying, well, here's a hundred yards of water that you have to stay in for three
0: hours. Got it. Interesting. And so, you know, and I know there's a a lot of people writing about competitive uh, fly fishing and, you know, it's getting a lot of mileage now, and it seems to be kind of moving more into the mainstream, for anglers that are thinking about kind of working it into their fishing routine, what would you suggest as an approach?
1: So I think there's a number of resources. So I guess as a media guy, I think about channels, but if you're a book guy, which I am, uh, I would check out. There's a number of books. Um, starting from the beginning, one of my mentors currently like Joe Humphreys had some great books. I think George Daniels latest two books are really, really good. Um, a dynamic nymphing and the second one, which i You probably know the name of
0: it, I forgot, but... Yeah, it it escapes me at the minute, but I can tell you it's on my website, so folks, if you want to buy it... George um,
1: Daniel, you know, legendary angler, won a couple championships, great human being, just a good guy, just honestly an epic angler. Um, You know, Lance and Devin did their DVD uh, with Rally. that's really good. There's a lot of international stuff that's good as well, and then... Honestly, like, you know, a handful of guys that are still guiding, you know, Gordon and Josh Miller and some of those, Josh Miller and PA, Gordon in North Carolina. There's, I've been all over the world and seen the the people that created this thing and fished with them. And I, I do believe that we have some of the, some of the finest talent in that sport here in the States. And some of those guys are guides. So, you know, it's one of those things, depends on how you learn, but what I like to do is read it then see it and then do it. So that's what I try to, try to
0: make happen. Yeah. And I know we're lucky in the Southeast that, you know, we've got some really, really good people. So it's easier if you're kind of in the mid Atlantic, uh, kind of Northern Southeast to actually go fish with some of these guys.
1: Yeah. I think, um, you know, the concept it's like anything, like when I tell a beginner in in principle, it's super basic. I can keep contact with my flies and put them in the right place. I'm going to be able to detect bites and catch fish. In, in practice, you know, there's a million facets of it, but understanding, I think George Daniel, in fact, to, to paraphrase him, breaks it down like all nymphing is either suspension or tight line. So either hanging flies off of whatever dry or an indicator, or your or your cider, or your tight line. And so, you know, I think as a simple approach, I would, I would learn how to do both well, and you're going to catch them.
0: Yeah, and, and how long did you fish competitively?
1: So. Gosh, let me think about that. Um, I would say seven years. So we we started at the Rumble in the and the uh, Rhododendron, and I actually went and watched that that tournament in 2008. I'd never seen one, so I just kind of hung out with Gordon and watched him fish and some of the guys. That's where I met um, Josh Stevens and Chris Lee, which we can talk about. But then I, I don't know. I don't want to say quit, but I knew that Around 2011, I think we were in Poland, I believe. And we had gotten the world championships, both the youth and the adult, to Colorado with the help of John Knight. And I knew that we'd been really successful. We'd won you know, three or four medals already. And I kind of knew that if I could take this thing full circle from where we started and win it home and kind of close it out, that that'd be the end of my coaching. And I spoke with my assistant coach, Chris Smith, about it and, you know, kind of groomed him up into the position. Um, it was about that same time, probably 2000. What is that? 16, maybe 15, 16. Uh, I fished my last regional here. I was fortunate to win it. I don't know. I just knew it was time. Like I'd, I'd done a lot of work and thought about it every day and every night for many, many years. At the time I was a cop, I was working driving a patrol car and that's all I thought about was fishing and growing the sport and, you know, I just—I you know, knew it was time. I'm sure you've been like that. In things when
0: yeah, it's sure, time absolutely.
1: to give it to someone else and had the fire. You know,
0: yeah. And how long did you fish competitively before you made the fly fishing team USA?
1: Um, so nobody's going to believe me—not that long.
0: So it would have been
1: two years, probably. Um, competitively, so 2009 to no, a little under three years. So I did my first tournament, which was the rumble in the Rhododendron in Cherokee. And then I actually made the us team. I think it was 2012 or 11, maybe 2011. I think actually in bend or no 2012. I'm sorry. Bend Oregon.
0: And uh, really, who, I mean, yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Sorry. I was going
1: to say it was, we can talk about that. It was, you know, there was a lot of lakes there and it was, definitely an interesting uh interesting dynamic i'd actually fished the year before at the national championships that we held here in cherokee and got i don't remember top 20 but it was it was the lake that got me in that championships so i fell out way out of the, the upper end of the pack and uh i was a little nervous going into bend oregon knowing i had a couple lakes to deal with
0: and, and who are your other team members that you that made the team when you were, you made the team
1: Oh, man. So from our area, the first people that Josh Stevens was on the team and has been a, I wouldn't say a founding member, but a longtime member of Team USA. So he was the only, he was the first guy from around here, from Robbinsville, North Carolina. And he was kind of the, the guy. Like, Gordon, that's who he introduced me to. And I can remember fishing on his home creek and just really looking up to him because he'd been on the team. He'd been to World Championships. He knew the organization and the players and he, he was the most decorated angle in our area. So he made the team or was on the team. And then at the 2011 nationals, I can remember Chris Lee also from Bryson city um, was my assistant coach with the youth team. Actually Uh, he made the team, Josh made it again. And then we had, gosh, I know I'm going to skip over people. I'm thinking about from our area. And then in 2012, um, I made it, Josh made it again, which is pretty typical. Um, and then Chris Lee kind of just faded out. He, he quit competing as much. And I think he started working a lot more, which kind of hurt his fishing.
0: Yeah. It, it hurts everybody's fishing actually. <laughs> Truth. Well, that's cool. So can you share a favorite memory or an accomplishment from your time as a competitive angler?
1: Yeah, so if you don't care, I guess I'll break it down into, like, personally and then uh, coaching-wise.
0: Yeah, that'd be great.
1: Personally, I would say, I mean, obviously making Team USA is a great feeling. Um, really, I mean, I, I believe some of the best anglers in the world are on that team. Um, so I guess, honestly, my favorite memory as a competitor, which will sound strange, but competitors listen to understand, was in the America's Cup. Which is a big international tournament put on by John Knight in Vail, Colorado. I did it for five, six years. Was, for guys that weren't on the team, it was the only taste of international competitions. It was a, just a great, great time. But we, there was a mudslide in the Colorado River, and it was not good, needless to say. So trout don't need a lot, but they do need water. And nobody was catching fish. So I can remember putting on a single surveyor, which is a Lance Egan fly, but it's tied olive. Olive Surveyor with a silver bead bean, a 14, Nymphin 7X, and I gridded off the Colorado River for my beat. And I didn't catch a fish for two hours and 50 minutes, and I had 10 minutes left. And I was fishing as hard as, you know, ever and caught a small brown trout, 24 centimeters. So I was super pumped because, you know, if you blank in a tournament, you get the maximum placing points. It's kind of like the curse of death. And I knew everybody was blanking this. So I knew that if I could somehow catch a fish where they didn't live at the time, which was in this mudslide, that I had a chance. And I did. And then I actually hung another fish with a minute to go and broke it off a big one. And when I was leaving the river, an angler told me, he said, how'd you do, man? And I said, gosh, I got one. He said, yeah, I saw you at the last minute. We talked about it. And he said, you know, I always know that no matter what, like, you're not going to blank, like you're going to catch a fish. And he said something to the effect of, like if Paul doesn't catch a fish, then there's a problem. And for me, it was the first real compliment, you know, I'd gotten from somebody that I looked up to and I just, I don't know, it stuck out to me. Like it. beyond winning tournaments, like having the support of your peers. I felt like I'd made it. So that stands out to me the most, I think personally.
0: Very cool, and, and I know you, you you used to coach the U.S. youth fly fishing team. When did you make the jump into that?
1: So I was, that was, gosh,
0: let me think about it. I don't want to get my dates wrong. That would have been
1: 2011, 12, 12-ish time. Yeah, it would have been 2012-ish time frame. Um, we had started a regional team here called the North Carolina Fly Fishing Team, and Kind of a quick backstory, a friend of mine, Dejon Heyman, and it was kind of his brainchild in my late night support over phone calls, started this thing called trout legend. And we said, Hey, if we can build a ranking system and a, in a forum and a point structure, we can build these regional teams. We can do what these other countries do, which is kind of use the home teams of a farm league for the national team. And, you know, we did it. I, it was North Carolina fly fishing team was ultimately started by Eugene Schuler out of Bryson city. Excellent caster. Um, well-known guy in the area guy I looked up to, and we came on and, you know, competitive fly fishing. He was kind of the first guy to really push for that here. And, you know, the team grew really big. We got a nonprofit status. There was 25 or 30 members, there was tournaments. And then, Georgia, you know, I went down there and shared bylaws and did a few things. And Georgia got a great team going, Dead Drift, Uh, Team Stonefly with Michael Yelton, Chris Smith, and Jason Baker. So all these teams kind of popped up. And it it was really the key to our success and ultimately to the youth team. Because as we were holding these practices and doing these things, all these young guys started coming around. And I guess it was 2012, I'd heard about the youth team um george daniel or john wilson had coached it from Cortland line great guy great angler uh, george daniel had been there uh lauren williams who's on team usa also was coaching And at the time in 2011 lance wilt from pennsylvania was coaching and some people i guess unfairly said well lance never competed so why was he the coach and I, i'll tell anybody listening that lance's one of the best anglers I've been around in my life. And I learned a tremendous amount from him. So I thought he did a great job. So I got brought on as the assistant coach of team USA because I, I'd ran a few successful clinics here on Manana Hala in 2011. And then I got the head coaching position, uh, in 2012.
0: You guys won medals five years in a row. And I mean, that's a pretty incredible accomplishment. And so can you share the secret sauce, Paul?
1: You know I can. And I, I've been asked this a bunch and I guess I'll just jump into it. So for us, you know, there had been a couple a couple guys that won some medals. Uh Norman team had won one with John Wilson. Uh Jeff Curry had won one in ninety seven, I believe, in Jackson Hole. And we uh Lance Wilt got, you know, I was assistant coach, there's a team silver in France and we went on to win a lot of golds. And the the secret was I guess two things so i'll start with the first the mentality and then i'll I'll end with the the best thing i ever heard in fly fishing so the mentality for me was this thing called team metal mentality and that's anybody through my program knows it but what i what i figured out from cooking and, and policing and doing high stress jobs that you're only as good as your teammates and that motivationally i knew i was willing to fail myself but i wasn't willing to fail my teammates so I always had this kind of really team-oriented uh, this goal. So I kind of invented this team medal mentality. And my the methodology is that if five-man fishing team shows up to a tournament, and everybody's really good, and it, their only focus is a team medal. So that means collectively they all did well enough to be the number one team. The individual results would follow. And I thought that if we if we could nurture this this culture in this community with that team medal mentality that we could be successful and it works. I'm just here to tell you, you know, there was, we've, we've blanked and turned around and won. We've had ups and downs, but when you have five guys working together that trust each other, that fish together a lot, you know, you don't have to worry about flies because if somebody comes in, if you come in and say, Hey Paul, I I won on this fly, you have all the confidence in the world. And you know that, you know, if you have a bad session, your boys are going to help you out and vice versa. So I think team medal mentality is the secret. I know it's the secret to winning world championships because we did it for a really long time. I think any you know there was times during the adult team and certainly on our regional team and other regional teams, uh, when, if you're not winning, like if there's you know things are kind of you're in a rut, you can always look back to that team medal mentality. I think that's the secret sauce.
0: Well, that's awesome. I'm so glad you shared that with us. Very cool. I mean, and it's crazy, right? Because I mean, maybe not all of our listeners know. I mean, you're a really young guy. You're in your early 30s, and I mean, we're not even halfway through all the stuff you've done yet. I mean, it's incredible.
1: Yeah, it's honestly like I I think I think about it a lot now because you know I've been thinking a lot about competing and competing again and things. But yeah, it seems like a blur. Like when I think it's a testament to if you want to do something, you can do it. And everyone always gives you like, you know, the hoorah speech. But the truth is, is you are what you think about. And for me, you know, I spent a lot of time in a patrol car and a lot of time guiding back then. I worked both jobs. And I thought a lot about like, how can I serve my community? How can I serve this thing that I love, which is fly fishing? And when you think about something literally nonstop, especially me, you know, I get a little obsessed about stuff. I think you can do a lot of great things. So it just, you know, it's funny early on, I'm not going to say who, but somebody told me they're kind of trying to get, get to my head. Like, why do you care about this so much? And he said, you know, you'll never get a national championships to North Carolina. You'll never be able to make team USA. You'll never, you know, these things are unattainable. Like it's, you can't do it. It's too hard to break in. And needless to say, I'm glad he was wrong.
0: <laughs> you know, abs- absolutely. And I mean, in the in kind of the, one of the next things you sort of jumped into was you, uh, you served on the FIPS Moosh board, um, which, you know, be great to talk a little bit about that and how you got interested in it, but also to help uh, our listeners who may not be familiar with what FIPS Moosh is. Um, if you could let share that as well, that'd be great.
1: Sure. So, um, FIPS Moosh is uh, the international organization that represents all competitive fly fishing. So FIPS uh, is underneath another organization that's absolutely massive and global as well called SIPS. Actually, John Knight serves as our SIPS representative right now. But how it works is the FIPS Moosh board meets biannually. They meet every year, but biannually they review any rule changes and then they adopt any new changes to the rules. Uh, they also vote and elect on where where and when world championships are going to be, which is broken into seniors, uh, masters, so over fifty, I believe. Uh, the world championships, the Europeans, and the youth worlds. So, as a young angler coming into the game, you know, fly fishing team USA was hard to navigate. There was no clear structure. There was no clear way to make it. We knew you had to, you know, win or at least be consistent in the tournaments. But for us, the only the only Kind of vessel we had was Josh Stevens, and Team USA has looked really different over the years. You know, Anthony Neroni coached it for a long time, George, uh, blah blah blah. So it's it's kind of shifted, and the point systems changed. But it was always really smoky to me about like what is Phipps and how does this work? So as as luck would have it, there was a after one of the World Championships, I think it was Ireland, um, I met one of the international supervisors. So. Those guys, what they do is they basically stay with the home team to make sure they don't cheat. Because if you host a, you know, if you host a world championships in your backyard, it's, we'll say tempting for people to do the wrong thing. And the international supervisors, frankly, just make sure they don't cheat. So he called Jason Lee versus his name, um, said, Hey, do you want to be an international supervisor? I need somebody that knows the rules and blah, blah, blah. I said, sure. That sounds like a great time. So I went out to, I think my first one was in the Czech Republic and I got paired, which is great because the Czech Republic, you know, is one of the most dominant teams, them and the French and a few others, the most dominant teams in the history of fly fishing. And some of the legends of competitive fly fishing and the very flies that we fish to this day were born in this kind of Southern Bohemia Czech Republic. So I was all in. So I go there, represent Phipps. It was cool to be on the other side of the coin, you know, everybody waving their flag in the parade in the street. And now you're kind of on the flip side running the tournament. I got paired with Lubos Rosa. And as fate would have it, he ended up winning the world championships that year. So Lubos is clearly one of the best anglers on the planet. But I got to stay with him every second of his every session. And... A lot of people when they, when I got back, they said, "Well, what'd you learn? You know, what, what's it like from a seeing a world champion?" And I remember what I told them was, "There's nothing he does different. He doesn't even fish a 10 foot rod. It was a nine and a half foot Sage SLT." I asked him, I said, "Why do you fish this rod? You know, shouldn't you have like some ninja rod, like some 10 foot two weight whatever?" He said, "No, this is a rod I've always had. It's the only one I have. I just like it." I just remember that made a big impression on me. I was like, man, you know, maybe it's not the gear. Um, so after the the uh, the championships, I think I I did one more supervisor round, and then I was I appro- I wouldn't say I was approached. I was talking to the president, Paul Zeekman's, a Belgian guy. He's been the president for a long time, and he basically made the comment that he was ultimately, you know, going to step down eventually. And that his predecessor would be Mario Padmanic, a guy from Bratislava, Slovakian, super nice guy, good angler. And that he was wanting kind of a younger face than Phipps Moosh and was asking if I'd be interested. And a lot of people kind of rallied and said, yeah, we'd like that. You know, I had a decent reputation from fishing and the world. So I went to, I kind of expressed my interest and wrote a plan of like the things I'd like to see happen. And then went to Mexico, I believe it was to one of the, uh, the Congresses and no, I'm sorry. It was, uh, Slovenia, To one of the Congresses and got elected. So all the, all the countries kind of voted on who they wanted and, uh, made it. So I was like, I think it was the first American for sure. Probably one of the youngest in the organization. And, you know, it's just interesting to see that the access was always there. And that for me was kind of my initiative was to give people the access they needed because I think it's hard for them to get excited about things they can't understand. So we tried to do a better job about announcing our processes and how we worked and, you know, just the whole, you know, it's just the whole business end of what is it to run a global thing. And it's been a really good time.
0: Yeah. No, transparency is a big deal, particularly in large international organizations and and you know I guess one more accolade before we talk a little bit about Drift Media, um, I think you were the second master casting instructor in the state of North Carolina, isn't that right? I think I don't Ma-
1: know to be honest with you.
0: I think that's true. I think a, I think Ma- sounds good. I think Ma- I think Mac Brown was the first one, and I, I think you were the second one. And you know, for people that don't know, that's sort of the highest level of uh, instructional certification from the. Uh, gosh, I'm going to call it the International Federation of Fly Fishers. I guess it's Fly Fishers International now, but that's a tremendous amount of work. What made you decide that you wanted to pursue that credential and what was the journey like?
1: Okay. So I'm going to talk too much. I'm going to try to make it as short as
0: possible. No, you should talk more. People love this stuff.
1: Um, so I get, anyway, so we'll, we'll, you know, going back like 2008, keep in mind, I can't cast 40 feet. I know where fish live. I don't have to cast further than 40 feet because I'm fishing these tiny mountain streams. So, Gordon Vanderpool teaches me to cast, and I start reading. And I start reading. I'm trying to learn everything I can about casting. And I start reading, you know, Lefty Cray. I start reading Ed Jaworski. I start reading all these things. I did not know Mac. Mac Brown doesn't even know this story, so I hope he's listening. I didn't even know Mac Brown. I picked up his book. Called casting angles, at a fly shop in South Carolina. Just randomly traveling, fishing, picked up this book called Casting Angles. I opened it up to the middle of the book to see if it had any meat or not. The first thing I saw, I saw an article, or I'm sorry, not an article, but a, a you know some copy about angular rotational thrust. That was the very first thing I opened up to. And I remember thinking I read the whole page. I'd like to think I'm reasonably intelligent, but I didn't understand 90% of it, I'd say, realistically. And I was like, wow, if this guy has written a book and I don't understand almost all of this entire page and there's hundreds of pages, he must be good. I had no idea Mac lived one town away from me. So one thing led to another, and I get to know Mac Brown. And as I'm learning the casting, Gordon got me way where I needed to be fishing. Max started kind of showing me what the, the, I would say the Federation way. So it's like, you know, basically the the, the essentials and fundamentals that make a cast. And that led me, I got really excited about it. Cause I was like, wow, for me, it wasn't a badge of honor. Like I didn't give two craps who thought I could cast or couldn't cast. I just wanted to be a better teacher. So I thought, you know, if I could be, you know, teach somebody a way that was better than I want to know. Cause you know, growing up, I didn't have anybody to teach me anything. So I was just hungry for knowledge. And I thought maybe I can be that guy. So I took my CI. uh, This is way back when at at Western Carolina university. And I passed it. And I met this guy, Mac, you know, we were friends at that point. I met Eric cook from the Southeast Atlanta, Tom roofing, man, the list goes on. And I thought, wow, these guys are great casters. You know, I was learning from them and they were, teaching me and there's a lot of pressure on me because I was kind of Mac's student and Mac had kind of endorsed me, which meant a lot to me. And then as time went on, I, I can remember at the end of my CI test, Eric Cook started asking me about transverse waves and how loop propagates and does a curve cast really curve or is it a, you know, is it a wave and talking about just string theory and strange stuff. He's a, he's an engineer. Yeah, so I was just getting ready to say, just, yeah. <laughs> It was crazy. You know, I was like, wow. So I answered the questions the best of my ability. And I don't know if I answered them right or wrong. I don't even remember what I said, to be honest with you. But, you know, he kind of encouraged me and said, hey, you should try this MCI thing, this master casting instructor. Basically said it's really hard and didn't say you can't do it, but said it's really hard and it's tough to do, which obviously got my attention. Um, At that point, I, I started ringing Mac's phone off the hook and he started asking me questions and he wouldn't really tell me the answer, but he would make me go find, find the answer. So he'd send me in all these journeys. And then I was cast the whole lot, continued casting with Gordon. Uh, he came up to the CI program as well. So we kind of spoke the same language and you know, it was, frankly it was Mac pushing me. So I ended up going down to, Oh man, where was I? Western, I think. No, I got my CI in Helen, Georgia, and it was Western Carolina university. And my testers were uh, David Diaz, who was one of the board of governors. I think Eric Cook may have been around. Uh, I'm trying to think who else was around. Mac Martin, a handful of guys. But I took my MCI and passed it. Which you know, I heard all these horror stories about people taking it three, four, or five times, and I took it once and passed it. But I spent a tremendous amount of time becoming a student of not just casting, but you know, physics and biomechanics and anything and everything that involved swinging a, a fly around on a piece of string. I mean, I was fully vested, needless to say.
0: Yeah. It's funny you say that. Cause I can remember I was at that, um, at that, that event and I can remember you at the, at the dinner on probably Saturday late, you know, late afternoon, early evening, and you had passed your test. Um, uh, I can remember Mac being there. Um, how long did it take you to prepare? So once you kind of, you know, took the, uh, encouragement from Eric, uh, as a CI, how long did you study and work before you took and passed the exam the first time? I think it
1: was a little more than a year and a little under two years. I can't remember. It was the next time a, that, that Western conclave came together. I had considered going to another place to take it, but I felt like, I don't know. I, I don't think it's accurate, but how I felt at the time was if I tried to take it too early, no matter if they'd see that I took the CI a year ago and i was sitting for the MCI, I didn't want anybody to think that, you know, well, I wasn't ready because of some time frame. And like we said before, like my opinion is if you are what you think about, and I was kind of betting on the home team that I thought more about casting and teaching casting in a one year period than most people. So I, I kind of waited a little bit. I took some more practice tests, um, and I think it was about a year and a half when that came back around at Western when I took it.
0: Yeah, that's pretty impressive. And if we shift gears a little bit, I know your day job is uh, running drift media production. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what you do at drift?
1: <laughs> yeah. So drift, um, man, what a, what a crazy, I tell my wife sometimes I'm trying to be all the, uh, what are the, the village people to so be the cop, the cook, the everything, but, so Drift Media was kind of a strange thing. I, I'd always taken pictures and I enjoyed photos. I wasn't, I didn't know anything. I just knew what I read. I was always kind of messing around and I liked, I, you know, I cooked before I was in law enforcement, I cooked at a restaurant. I always enjoyed like sh- taking pictures of people doing their job, but the real pictures like guys working or after a shift or instead of pictures of fish, I like the pictures of the places. and like, The journey getting there and like that was the stuff that resonated with me so i was always kind of just a photography nerd and didn't know anything and we one of the the youth members on the team hunter Hoffler. uh long story short was talking with his folks about doing a tv show and i'll be completely honest to tell you that i didn't i didn't think that at the time when i was speaking to melissa his mother that it was going to turn into anything but we were just talking about kind of dreams and hopes i was still in law enforcement i said man you know i'd really like to have a production company i think i could do that she didn't say much um we talked about it and a short time later she called me and said i, I want you- hunter was thinking about doing this tv show he has this idea i want i want you guys to talk about it And i was like sure like i was hanging out with hunter all the time and this in the loop this tv show came up and basically what it was was hunter would go and fish with these guys. A lot of them competitors, but not all of them. And then we would share the things that we learned and put them on TV. I thought, man, what a great outlet. Like, I can, who knows who's going to see it and like decide that maybe they want to go fish instead of who knows what else. So, frankly, she just said, hey, I, I want you to do it. Here, here's the money for it. And I, I was, man, I'll tell you, looking back, I was scared to death. I didn't know what to do. I had a, I wouldn't say a well-paying job, but law enforcement certainly steady. And I had a decision to make. Do I want to, you know, take a risk on myself and go out here and do this thing? Or do I want to, you know, just cruise on in law enforcement, and see what happens. And the first, I think, season, give or take, I kind of did both. So I didn't, I didn't uh, tell the law enforcement guys too much what was going on, but I was ducking out the film and honestly googling stuff i knew nothing really i didn't i was googling like how do you get a show on tv just the whole nine yards but we just did it our way and that worked somehow i don't know how but we we went to sponsor meetings like we owned them didn't have a clue in the world what we were doing and we put out a season on destination america which was a discovery network channel and it did pretty well and then you know as as that moved on, people started asking us like, Hey, we really love your style. We really love your look. You know, maybe you have something here. And now I got that kind of same feeling I got when I was at the America's cup and somebody said, Hey, you're, you're pretty good at this. So we decided that we'd start taking on some extra work, you know, some photo jobs and shooting some commercials and some short films. And then one thing leads to another. And then, you know, now we're all over the place. And it was, Really, I mean, our key to success was was authenticity. That's our motto, and I think it's a you know a powerful qualifier. So we we took things that we knew, which in my life was fishing and hunting and law enforcement, tactical stuff, and we told real stories about real people, and we shot it as cinematic as we could. And as, as normal as that sounds in this day and age, you know, seven years ago, it was it was not that way. So I guess it was kind of those you know, the fly fishing film tour, that whole scene. That's really what all I wanted in the beginning was to get a film in the film tour. Yeah. Now I, we do, we do a bunch of them now, but it was, you know, now it's kind of a, more of a hobby. But back then, like that was the, that's what I wanted. I said, I want a film in the film tour.
0: Yeah. And, and I guess the most recent one, right, is the film about Dubai. Is that the most recent one you've had in the film tour?
1: <laughs> yeah. So, um, I filmed there, so R.A. Biatti from Biatti Outdoor Productions, who's a legend, um, and Brian Gregson, a photographer uh, with Yellow Dog and Hatch, and just, again, just epic, legendary. He, he called me and said, hey, we're doing this Dubai on the fly film. Do you want to go and film? I said, absolutely. And just before that, Yako Lucas, who a lot of you guys know that are listening, again, just super worldly guy, well-traveled one of the finest anglers around, super active on social. I had just, uh, filmed in Tanzania with him for tiger fish and went pretty well, you know, pretty tough conditions. And I did not know RA, but I certainly watched all of his movies from day one. So for me, it was kind of like a dream come true. Cause I really looked up to both those guys, both Yako, RA, Brian Gregson, Sarah Greg was there. So yeah, it was, a uh, it was an awesome time.
0: Very cool. And I, obviously you're a road warrior when you're filming all over the world like that. And uh, some of your buddies have told me that you actually have your own verb about being borked. Uh, can you tell <laughs> listeners? Oh can you tell the listeners what being borked means?
1: Yeah. So that, that could be an adjective. That could be a noun. It could be a number of things. But, you know, I guess in, in brief, being borked is kind of like the funnel where all bad things that can happen, happen. That normally happens to me Whenever I'm as far away as possible, so I think it's, I think it's probably what keeps me lighthearted. And like, I don't know the word I'm looking for, uncaring. But I think it comes from like you know, in law enforcement, like you just, you don't, you can't predict anything. Cooking was that way. You don't know what's coming. You just got to react. And that's where I thrive. Is I don't like structure. I don't like plans. I don't, not terribly organized. I like to just react what's in front of me. And it seems like. Everywhere I go, we can talk for two hours. It's cars break down. I get hit in Portugal, almost to the airport. Get stranded there. This or that, you name it, it happens. So for me, I just, I just know I'm going anywhere far away that something crazy is going to happen and I'll figure it out.
0: Well, so what's one of your, yeah. So what's one of your most memorable experiences about being bored?
1: Uh, So I was coming back from Portugal from a a FIPS meeting and I was tight on my flight and I rented a car. It was a Mercedes SUV or I'm sorry, wagon, a five speed. Kind of sporty. Portugal's a little squirrely. But I was coming back and got side swipes around about. So I thought, okay, maybe I can still make this. And I did not. I brought it to the car place and needless to say, when you're Anybody that's never been overseas, America is a very accommodating and inviting place. And other places in the world aren't that way. It's kind of like, well, tough, you know what? So it took me two hours. The cops eventually came. At least I think they were cops. And I missed my flight. I had about 140 bucks in my checking account. So I definitely couldn't buy a new ticket. (laughs) And the next flight that they could get me out was two days later. I was like, okay, roger that. We are stuck in Lisbon, Portugal, so I've got $140, so I can definitely stay somewhere. I can definitely get a ride. I can definitely walk. My car is thrashed. Ended up meeting a guy at the airport. My wife doesn't even know the story. She's going to get mad. Meet this guy at the airport, saw my Sims hat. He said, hey, are you a fisherman? I said, yeah, man. Like, what's going on? He was just getting home. A business guy ran a uh, a trucking business. I told him the story. He was kind of laughing. And he said, well, hey, if you want to come hang out with me, like, my wife's gone, everyone's gone, we can go fish, I'll show you around. I said, sure, sounds great. So I literally hung out with this guy, and we fished. He wasn't a serial killer, which was good. And a couple of days later, he brought me back to the airport, and I went home. So, you know, could have easily been sleeping in the airport and griping, but I thought, let's roll with it, make it happen. <laughs> kind, of, kind of strange, but great guy I still talk to him on facebook and he's been over here a few times it's worked out well
0: yeah very cool well can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you're working on in 2019 at drift media
1: yeah so <coughs> our our fishing stuff is always good um fishing's a, i'd say you know a, a reasonable portion of our business uh we'll continue with fin chasers the tv show we have on discovery channel um working on some really exciting tactical stuff. Um, we got named the agency a record for 3M defense. So we're leading the charge with all their content and all their stuff for, you know, their, their Peltor and Scott Safety and Ceridine. So it's really cool to represent a, a global powerhouse like 3M. And we've got a few hunting things in the works that are really good. And I've got actually a few things I'm working on in fishing that are, really neat so we're going to try to do i don't want to let too much out but we're going to go to a place that's never been filmed at least modernly with a fish that one of my mentors larry dahlberg said is the the greatest sport fish on the planet earth they live in small creeks and they eat fly rods and they or eat flies and they get really big so we've got a little secret sauce plan for later this year
0: Well, very cool. And have you got any films that will be screened at uh, IF4 or F3T this year?
1: No, not this year. Um, I I didn't film any this year, but I'm a part of currently two. And of course, shooting them, um, just because you shoot them doesn't mean they get in. But I'm working on a film with Blaine Chocolate. Um, It's not musky, I'll say, for anybody listening. And then I'm working on this other thing uh, with Larry. So. Both of those we hope will make it, but we'll just got to see. There's a lot of really good submissions every year, so got to make it happen.
0: Well, very cool. Well, Where can folks find more information about you?
1: Um, On the Drift Media side, uh, driftmediaproductions.com, that's my cell phone listed. Um, I think I'm still listed, you know, in the the Federation's uh, website there. So both, you know, my cell phone's been the same for 20 years, and anybody wants to talk fishing, I'd say, give me a call.
0: Uh, well, very cool. And just for folks, if you go to the uh, Federation's website, you can find Paul. He'll be, if you search for casting instructors in North Carolina, his information will pop up there and I'll drop that in the show notes for everybody. Well, Paul, I I appreciate you taking the time. I'm glad we we're able to make this work. I can tell you with the snow and the holidays and hunting and fishing trips, it was a little bit hard for us to get together, but I'm glad we made it happen.
1: I appreciate you and I, you know, I appreciate all you're doing and we've known each other a long time, but I, I enjoy the, I like to know that, you know, there's an outlet for people that want to hear more to kind of hear it from, hear it from us. So I enjoy listening. I appreciate you having me.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much, Paul. And and everybody, thanks for joining us this evening. If you like the show, please subscribe. Uh, I would love it if you'd give me a review in iTunes. It helps a lot. Um, if you prefer to get everything delivered once a week, if you go to the website and subscribe to the newsletter, you'll get all of our blog posts and all of our podcast episodes for the week delivered every Saturday morning. Everybody, have a great evening. Thanks again, Paul. Tight lines, everybody.